Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Positively Maladjusted, Martin Luther King and Transformed Nonconformity. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 24th, 2008. In grad school 25 years ago, I wrote a paper on the preaching of Paul Tillich, and in the process read several collections of his sermons. When my professor Peter DeYoung described actually hearing Tillich preach, it occurred to me that merely reading his sermons must have paled in comparison. So I was surprised to learn that the book, Strength to Love, a book of sermons by Martin Luther King, is actually a bestseller for Fortress Press even though they published it long ago in 1986, and other publishers did so much earlier. King's Book of Sermons brings back memories. Fresh out of grad school, I taught a course on Contemporary Cultural Issues, or CCI as the students called it. William Tyndall College had been founded in inner-city Detroit in 1945, and when I was there, black students constituted 35% of our enrollment. Racism was more than an academic issue for my students. For my section on racism, the class read a favorite servant of mine by King from this book, Strength to Love. King's sermon is based on Romans 12, 1 and 2, one of the readings for this week. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. With typical eloquence and brilliance, King captured this powerful text in just two unforgettable words that I've always loved, transformed nonconformity. King observes how the pressures for cultural conformity, or what he says, to condition our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo, End quote, are immense. Nevertheless, followers of Jesus have a higher loyalty than conformity to social respectability. Living in time and for eternity, Christians need to discover ways to live very much in the world, but not of the world. We should never abandon the world, but we should never embrace it. We must make history, says King, but not be shaped by history. Liberal Christians tend to forget that the world is fallen, that God calls us to be what 1 Peter 1.1 calls strangers and aliens in this world. And so liberals often conform and can assimilate to culture. Conservatives, on the other hand, forget that the world is ultimately very good, Genesis 1.31. And so they tend to separate from and condemn culture as irredeemably evil. We ought to steer a middle course between these two extremes. We should, in love, we should love and engage the world without separating ourselves from it or allowing ourselves to be uncritically integrated into it. Most people, says King, are, quote, thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society, end quote. 
Social scientists tell us, for example, that Christians divorce at about the same rate as the general population. We watch the same films and television shows. We read the same books. We give about the same percentage of our income to charity as other people. Our teenagers have premarital sex at about the same rate as other kids, and so forth. The church, King reminds us, has defended slavery and racial discrimination, wars and economic exploitation. At some level, at least, we participated in the Holocaust. We swallow cultural propaganda, hook, line, and sinker. For example, we believe that sexual pleasure should be unlimited, that politics is the most important news, that poverty, rather than wealth, is the worst thing that could ever happen to you, that a risky investment provides so-called security, that physical health is my right, that whatever is technologically possible is scientifically imperative, even though it might be morally ambiguous. But even for those who choose the path less traveled and who try to swim against the tide, nonconformity by itself is nothing special. Here in California where I live, nonconformists are everywhere. They ride funny bikes, experiment with alternate energy, eat organic foods, dress down instead of dressing up, and generally flaunt what they think is an independent spirit but which often is merely a different type of social conformity. Sometimes, says King, nonconformity is little more than exhibitionism. In stark contrast, the nonconformity that the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 12, 1 and 2 has a specific orientation or direction, which is Christ-likeness through what Paul calls a renewed mind. The French sociologist Jacques Ellul, who lived from 1912 to 1994, worked with marginalized teenagers on the streets of Bordeaux back in the 1950s and 60s. His goal, Ellul said, was not to make these marginalized and disenfranchised kids adjust to the normal patterns of society. Making them fit in would only make them cultural conformists. Rather, Elul said, his goal was to help the kids move from being negatively maladjusted to society to becoming what he called positively maladjusted to society. He wanted them to be transformed nonconformists. King says something very similar in his book, and I quote, there are some things in our world to which men of goodwill must be maladjusted. I confess that I never intend to become adjusted to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination, to the moral degeneracy of religious bigotry and the corroding effects of narrow sectarianism, to economic conditions that deprive men of work and food, and to the insanities of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. Christian nonconformity, in other words, has a very specific orientation. Hope for our world rests in creati creatively and positively maladjusted believers. This week's other text from Exodus chapter 1 
provides an example of nonconformity in relation to the political powers of this world, in contrast to conformity to God's redemptive purposes. The Israelites were in Egyptian bondage, increasing in number and power, when the Pharaoh gave the order for infanticide to terminate all the male Hebrew births. But the midwives defied the state authorities because the text says, quote, they feared God, end quote, rather than fearing Pharaoh. Later, when asked what had happened, they covered up their civil disobedience by lying. Nonconformity isn't easy. King, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, paid the ultimate price when James Earl Ray assassinated him as he stood on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. When I suggested King's sermon to a small group Bible study in my church, one couple took a cursory look at what King had to say. They judged that they had no interest in his message and then quit the group. But the Apostle Paul is clear about the journey with Jesus. Transformed nonconformity. And now for further reflection. In their various books, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan argue that Jesus' alternate reign and rule subvert cultural conformity. They say that whether ancient or modern, most societies have normalized a status quo that consists of number one, political oppression that marginalizes ordinary people, two, economic exploitation whereby the rich take advantage of the poor, and number three, religious legitimation that suggests don't try to change things because that's the way God wants it. It's easy to think of other aspects of cultural conformity that Jesus would subvert. Ethnic stereotypes, media propaganda, gender roles, consumerism, degradation of the earth, voting patterns, obsession with sports, ideas about work and calling, on and on. Consider this week how God might want to transform and renew your mind toward a transformed nonconformity in the image of Jesus. For books this week, I review Rick Bragg, All Over But the Shouten, New York Vintage Books, 1997, 329 pages. In this first volume of his trilogy of family memoir, Rick Bragg, born in 1959, takes us to rural Alabama's deep south, and through his deaf storytelling introduces us to his people and their ways. With All Over But the Shoutin' and his two subsequent bestsellers, Ava's Man in 2001 about his grandfather, and The Prince of Frogtown, 2008, about his father, Bragg has earned an avid readership. It's easy to see why. His family of origin epitomized the poorest of poor white trash. His grandfather could neither read nor write. His grandmother dipped snuff. 
They picked the banjo, danced a jig, cussed like sailors, drank their homemade moonshine like water, and brawled at the slightest insult to defend so-called honor. Bragg spent one semester in college, then started writing. First high school sports, local stories, anything. In 1993, he won a prestigious Neiman Fellowship as a journalist to spend a year at Harvard. And then in 1996, he won a Pulitzer for feature writing at the New York Times. All over but the Shouten works well at many levels, but it's especially but, it, but it's especially so about embracing one's family with all its blessings and curses. Bragg introduces us to his violent alcoholic father, who repeatedly abandoned his family until his early death at age 41, his two brothers, and most of all to his mother Margaret. In his telling, his mother is a hero's hero. Margaret was effectively a single mother who raised three boys in destitute circumstances. She picked cotton and did other people's laundry at night, swallowed her pride and accepted welfare, slept on the sofa in their tiny shack. His chapter on taking his mother to New York City for his Pulitzer Award is worth the book alone. She had never been on a plane before and didn't own a suitcase. For what few trips she had taken before then, she merely stuffed her clothes in paper bags. In an interview, Rick Bragg once described All Over But the Shoutin' as a failed effort at revenge. His attitude toward his past is deeply ambivalent. On the one hand, he's deeply proud, as every person should be, of their family. With brutal honesty, he describes the angry chip he's carried on his shoulder about the endless put-downs and insults about people of the deep rural South. He'd prove those cultural snobs wrong, by God. On the other hand, his journey leaves rural Alabama as only a distant reflection in his rearview mirror as his professional reporting takes him around the world. The revenge he savored would come, he thought, when he finally saved enough money to buy his mother a real house for cash. And so he did. It would be what he called, quote, a house of healing, end quote. But the, bay, but the day his mother moved in, his two adult brothers brawled in the front yard, and his mother returned to her tiny shack before settling in to the new house. And so, Bragg admits, life and the power of place are far more complicated and rich. Rick Bragg has now come full circle. Today, he teaches writing at the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. Rick Bragg, all over but the shouting. For film this week, I review Shanghai Ghetto from the year 2002. This fascinating documentary recounts the history of 20,000 Jews who fled 8,000 miles from Europe to Shanghai, China during World War II when most all other countries had closed their borders to them. At the time, much of China, including Shanghai, 
was occupied and controlled by enemy Japan. Because of their own racist stereotypes, however, the Japanese feared the Jews and so allowed the refugees to exist in what was called the Restricted Sector for Stateless Refugees. They did so with the help of wealthy Baghdadi Jews and poorer Russian Jews who had already settled there, along with Western aid. A rich cultural life emerged that included schools, theater, newspapers, and music. As one of the poorest sections of Shanghai, life for the local Chinese who lived together with the Jews was often worse. After Pearl Harbor, American attacks on the Japanese in China made the horrible conditions in the Shanghai ghetto even worse. The film draws upon archival footage, diaries, letters, historians, and, most powerfully of all, interviews with a half a dozen survivors who were children of 8 to 10 years old at the time, but whose memories are still vivid. Shanghai Ghetto from the year 2002. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. E.E. E. Cummings lived from 1894 to 1962. The title is called, I Thank You, God. I thank you, God, for this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and love and wings, and of the gay, great, happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, Human merely being doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. I thank you, God, by E. E. Cummings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August twenty fourth, two thousand and eight. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.